0: All right, let's take a minute and pray, shall we? Lord, we are, we just count ourselves blessed. As we spoke this morning about the the list of spiritual blessings and the heavenly places for us, we just, just revel in it, Lord. The work that you've done, the amazing work, the amazing persons that you are. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Lord, we... We gather again just to take it in tonight, Lord, to to study about the depth of the riches of the grace of God. And so meet us here tonight, Lord, we pray, and through your Spirit, and by your Word, teach us more about you, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, this morning, and I I threatened you earlier, (laughs) maybe not threatened, but I promised you that we were going to continue this study in Ephesians chapter 1. We highlighted, for those of you who weren't here this morning, we highlighted the fact that every spiritual blessing is yours. You're the owner, the guaranteed owner of record for spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And all that needs to happen is one of two things. Either you need to croak or... You need to hear the sound of a trumpet, but that's it. And you will be in the presence, in possession of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, Paul has mentioned, and he will dig deeper in chapter 2, into uh, this subject of the riches of God's grace. And I think this is some some of this language that gets used, gets gets sort of lost in the great verses of chapter 2. Like, for instance, verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's an amazing verse. Uh, Or, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, etc., etc. These are the keystone verses of the doctrine of grace. But there is something called the riches of God's grace to us. And I think that this elevates the conversation beyond some... Uh, some use of cliches or cliche verses if I can say that. And so, you know, as he works through uh, the rest of chapter 1, one of the highlights of the rest of chapter 1 is this idea that he was praying that they would understand the exceeding power that raised Jesus from the dead. Because he says that is the same power that it is that is at work in you and me with regard to the riches of his grace, and uh, that power uh, works through what i 'll call for lack of better terms, perhaps unbelievable grace it 's just unbelievable if we, you and i we try to be gracious to people you know and so we 'll smile and we 'll nod our head and you know, th- those sorts of things. But this grace that we're going to discover again tonight, hopefully we'll rediscover it in some ways, uh, will be, um, it's just stunning and very important and I think very dangerous uh, in the way some people handle God's grace. When we elevate it to its proper position, I think you'll, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Let's look first at chapter 2, verse 1. Our condition... You were spiritually dead. Your location was lost. If I were going to keep in, uh, uh, keep in concert with the illustration from this morning, you're Ephesians chapter 2, you, uh, you're lost in space, right? We were talking about Apollo 11 or Apollo 13 this morning. So uh, never mind. It's, it's, we won't labor that stuff. And you. He's talking about, after talking about the, the, him, them wanting to have knowledge regarding the grace of God, he first gives us the original position that every one of us in this room were in. You, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Those of us who are the blessings receivers, you and I were dead. We had a death sentence on us. We were already condemned. We touched on that this morning. But John 3.18 says this. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So the fact that you would blow off Jesus as some sort of historical fellow. Or a mythical fellow. Or whatever. If you have not believed in who he is. Or what he has done. Then you are in a state of being lost. And condemned forever to hell. He talks further about the, this, uh, the other parts of this condemnation. It, he, we're dead in trespasses. Trespasses, is, they're interesting. Those are the direct, deliberate acts against God. So a trespass is when God says thou shalt not and you shalt right you 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 do it those are deliberate acts and then sins of course a ge- more general term that talks about just missing god's mark when you've sinned you've missed god's mark for what where, where you should have been what you should have done so we're we we were made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We were all walking in this place. The place of death. The place of the world. We were part of it. We went along with the flow. We followed its course. We we did what came natural to us. Thieving, lying. It just... I don't even want to dwell on it for very long because you you know how you were. You remember what you were like. And, you know, maybe you were even one of those, well, I was a pretty good person. All right, so what should we say that percentage was? You were 60% good? Well, the other 40% condemns you. And even if you pushed it to 99.9, there's still the 0.1, Right. Walking in the place of death, the world, its course, idea. And if you if you question whether that, the gravity. If you question the gravity of that statement, uh, we were following its leader, Satan. First John five nineteen says this: We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So you and I don't. Small percentage. But the whole rest of the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This one who is against God and I'll remind you against man. Satan is no friend of man. He's only a deceiver who wants people to think that. He is the spirit behind all you see in the world. We call him the spirit of the age. He really is a mocking destroyer. That's his goal. His goal and purpose for mankind is to destroy it, to 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 use whatever means possible to keep as many people from possible as coming to the Lord by destroying them. I, I, was, uh, I had the opportunity to watch part of a show. Somebody else was watching it, and I was in the room. And it, it, you know, these I, I think these witch shows are real popular right now, and they have been for some time. And I'm just watching how they portray these uh, Satan followers. The dark lord they called him in this way. So we all, know who he's, we're, we all know who we're talking about, right? The dark lord is Satan. And I was just fascinated by how they talked about him in such magnanimous ways. You know, that somehow he was going to be helping and doing things that were beneficial. That's a lie. His goal... Is to destroy. I think of. I mentioned the 27 club this morning. Those were artists. Who have died at the age of 27. Kurt Cobain. Uh, Jimi Hendrix. And some other great names. That if we went through the list. You would remem- remember them. But, but think about that. Every one of them it seems died. Uh, in some terrible way. Uh, drugs. Alcohol. Uh, you know, lives crashing down around them while being offered all of this fame and fortune and that music, you could bring peace to the world and all, all this other stuff. And it's no marvel that Satan's involved in the music business, right? That's no marvel. He was the worship leader in heaven. Music was his business. That was what he was created for. And so we learn here that that in this verse too, that we walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh this this place of walking in the world. You're invited to fulfill every desire of the lust of the flesh. I never thought I'd see it as bad as it is today. And so I've stopped saying I don't think it can get much worse. I stopped saying that. Because I think it's gotten a lot worse than I ever thought it could get. And you know, you, what, you, you have these, these two things here. He says, in the lusts of the flesh and fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Right, so it's, it's kind of every part of you. Uh, you can walk in the flesh to give it whatever it wants. Take an actual need. Something that would be normal for people to do. Like like sexual relations. It would be perfectly normal for people to have that in the context of marriage. But we take it beyond that, you know. It becomes whoredom or it becomes homosexuality. Or it becomes this or that or some other perverse thing that you never even thought was possible that's the lust of the flesh and it becomes about fulfilling self it's our nature your sinful mind is, is geared toward thinking up more and more perverse things and you just you, it's you're on a roll sometimes this is the condition that we were in We are by nature children of wrath just as the others. Just like everybody else, we were children of wrath. That was the only relationship we had to God prior to being saved. We were children of wrath. We had a close relationship to wrath. And we were headed for it. And then, verse 4. Finally, we've gotten through that now. Take a deep breath. We got through the bad part. All right? Verse 4, but God, right? In the midst of that horrible, terrible situation in which we all once walked, so there's none better than any other here, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he says parenthetically, by grace, you have been saved. Amen. By grace, you have been saved. He is rich in mercy. This, and we start to talk about, and this Paul, I believe, writes this chapter with those two things in juxtaposition on purpose so you can see where you came from, what you were, how bad it really was. And then you can look at that in the light of what God did. And then you're just like, right? Wow. It's amazing. But God, who is rich in mercy. Take your Bible. Since I'm told we, I have three and a half hours to finish this. (laughs) No, it won't last that long, I promise. Um, Turn to Psalm 103. Let's connect the riches of God's grace here to something back In the music of the Jewish nation here. Psalm 103. And we'll pick it up in verse 8. These will be familiar verses to you. But we want to connect them. To this but God statement here. Verse 8. Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high ab- for as the heavens are high above the earth so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame; he remembers our he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes; for the wind passes over it and is gone, and his place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. That is a measure, if you will, some poetic language to highlight the richness of God's mercy. It's everlasting and it flows from his great love. I know sometimes we grapple with the love of God. You know, how... Could he love this much? And I'll be honest with you. I don't know. Just the more I know, the more I don't know. About how much, how can he love like this? Well, My simple answer is this, God is love. He has, that's his nature. And it flows from him as natural as anything. It's called great love. The Greek word is polis. And it's the love that goes way beyond, right? That gives you a kind of a, a way of grasping onto it. Maybe a little bit, this this idea that the writer was trying to convey by seeing this love goes way beyond and that love was pointed toward us even while we were rejecting him. It's hard to love people when they reject you, right? And we were just like, oh, well, I'll show them. You know, I say, you're going to hate me. I'll hate you back, you know, or whatever. You know, it is, or we just avoid, avoid them and, and try to act religious or whatever. But God, <laughs> you know, God, not that way. Even when we were in dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He did the work before the foundation of the world, we learned this morning. And it's through grace that we're saved. Unmerited favor. That's what the word grace means. An unmerited, undeserved favor that was bestowed upon you. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't have earned it. It was just given to you. And grace does the work of salvation. Watch now. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together. And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I warned you earlier today about that in Christ Jesus thought that just Paul just keeps hammering it. Every chapter, every verse so far, you recognize, hey, the location of the blessings, the location of this being raised up together and sitting together in the heavenly places is in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's affected. It's already done. We're just not there yet. Like I told you this morning, you're on leeway Right? And so this happened, this happens in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we're alive with him, raised with him, together with him. It's all done. It's happening in the past tense in the scripture here. And it will make eternity the showcase of grace. When you and I are there, I'm 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 more and more clear on this in my own mind. When you are uh, and I are there, the thing that is going to cause us to be effusively pro you know proclaim him and and uh, and praise him and and fall in love with him over and over again is going to be this very thing: the riches of his grace. There was this one exceeding thing driven by love. Love drove grace. And as a result of that, we were saved spectacularly, unbelievably. And in in eternity, we will uh, see this showcase of the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus through that conduit again, right? And now we get uh, an explanation. Now I remind you I, I've said this for years and I, I like to remind everybody of this. When you see the word for, f o r, for, that means an explanation is coming. Right? He's getting ready. He just said something and now he's getting ready to build on that very thought. So watch what happens here. For He talks about the exceeding riches of his grace. Then he says, for by grace, you have been saved. This is is the, the, if you will, for lack of a better term, the machinery of salvation. Besides Jesus dying on the cross and all of that. The machinery of it, the driver of it is uh, grace. Grace saved. And it happened through faith. God acting solely on his own in this matter. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So you didn't earn it, you can't, and he's going to talk about that in a minute, but he's highlighting the riches of God's grace now. He says, because by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, this is coupled together. It has to be because faith is the vehicle by which you obtain grace. Right? So you have to have faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Right? But faith is what takes you to the place of grace to be saved. Now, this is really important. He says this grace it's, it's, or this faith, nothing of this is generated by you. It's the Holy Spirit coming alongside, revealing it and showing it to you. And then he says, of course, it is the gift of God. It is unmerited favor. It's poured, upon, it's poured out upon us uh, in, in such fullness. And, and in, you know, looking at those first verses on such, so many undeserving souls. And he poured it out. You know what I'm saying? There's a, little, there's a little sprinkle of grace, guys. I feel sorry for you. But no, it might as well have been Lake Tahoe getting dumped on your head. Now he gets, he, he, he's, you know, Paul's a Jew. So he has that background that he's he's coming from. And and now here's where he separates himself from his own Phariseeism. Like pulling out your own toenail, right? He's going to separate himself from his own Phariseeism. And he says, not of works. This is an exclusive statement. The book of Romans, he argues for chapters about the difference between works and grace. And here... He just nails it down for you and I. Look, this unmerited favor is not of works. You can't earn it. Be as good as you can be. Keep nine of the Ten Commandments if you can. But there'll still be one you blew. And you'll find yourself... People get tied up in doing works. You know... they find themselves disappointed in themselves. They're, I'm disappointing God. I'm disappointing myself. I, I can't get my act together. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you is everything. I'm sorry. Everything is wrong with you. And you get this when you finally get that, I was talking about it this morning, Paul in his later years writing to the Corinthians, he says, look, I don't even judge myself anymore. I'm not even sure I'm an effective judge of who I really am, let alone other people. Not of works. Why? Lest anyone should boast. That's exactly what you could do. I mean, or what you would do. If if anything relied on you, that would be the one thing you and I would brag about. Oh, yeah, I did all that other stuff. Yeah, you know, Bathsheba and Uriah and all that, but I was a pretty good king. Oh, wrong comparison, wrong measure. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. This boasting, uh, it comes natural to us. And we would, uh, we would immediately begin to rely on that one thing. And then think, well, because of that one thing, somehow I deserve God to save me. But we didn't do anything. What I like about the way Paul says this in verse 9, not of works lest anyone should boast, is he takes a knife and stabs it in the heart of pride. When you start focusing on your works as a way that you're going to earn your way to heaven, that's pride at work. And we're going to have an illustration of this in a few moments But he destroys pride with that. It just demolishes it with this this verse, verse 9. And then now a contrast. Look again, the word for. For we are his workmanship. Turns the tables out. It's not about the works that you do. It's about the work he does in you. Very interesting word here. This word poema his workmanship his poema his poetry his artistry his ability made known in you right it's not about you working to get to heaven it's about you saying i'm saved thank you god here i am use me and then god by his spirit fills you and begins a process of working in you for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's not works. It's not even your works after you're saved, right? You just don't even get to claim any of it. It's just, I showed up and he did something cool with me. Isn't that cool? I would have never planned, you know, God has done so many things through the years that we would have never planned, you know. We just showed up and he did the rest. That's what he's talking about here. So works, this idea of religious based works or whatever is completely destroyed here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Uh, the old things, man's ability, his boasting, his pride, whatever, that's passed away. And the only works that we're concerned about now are the ones that God has prepared for us to walk in, not work in for something. Prepare for us to walk in, not work in. Right? So if you, if you have that lingering thought like I talked about this morning that somehow there's something for you to do, your to-do in all of this, zip it and listen for what God wants you to do and walk in it. It's, so, it's just easy, right? Just took all the burden off you tonight. If you've been trying to be a good person, man, you're always disappointed. If I want to be a God person, then I just have to let His Spirit work through me, be available for that every day. Looking for what we'll talk about later, the the fruit of the Spirit in us to flow out of a saved soul for the glory of God, not the glory of me, so that I I don't boast. Now, why... I'm making a big deal out of this tonight, right? This is a big deal, and there's a reason why I'm doing that. First of all... We're surrounded by the idea that you must earn your way, right? We have some great American ideals. We really do when we talk about work and stuff like that. You know, you you have to get a job, save for retirement, work hard, earn respect. These are all classic American ideals, right? Let me say this to you. They have no place in the proper understanding of what God has done in Christ, So while it's good for you to work hard, you have to separate that thinking from getting to heaven, from salvation, from those things. You have to stay away from that. I mean, consider the entirety of the Old Testament, especially the nation of Israel. There's a working bunch of people right there. They were working to be good. They were bringing sacrifices. They were doing all this stuff, and they were still messing up. Before they had the whole... Worship system down. They were ready to throw Moses to the wolves, you know. They had a rough go in the desert. We know that. And, and, you know, then they were given the law of God. They actually had it written down by him. Told exactly what to do. And over and over, the, vis-a-vis the book of Judges, right? If you've read the book of Judges, 40 years and then, and 40 years and then, and 40 years and then, and go, okay, I get it. They kept messing up. We can't even do the ten main things, as I've said. Our work is a failure. The Pharisees come away with the idea that if you tried, you could earn your salvation. If you were painstaking, you would be accepted by God. You know, if you weighed out your tithe, just to make sure it was exactly right, then it would all be good. They couldn't do it either. In fact, they disgusted Jesus with their emphasis on that. Many other religions encompass the same idea. Eat certain things, stay away from others, right? The Muslims, similarly to the Jews, don't like pork, right? Stay away from that. You can't eat that. You'll become defiled as a result. You have to go on a mission in some religions, or you have to go to Mecca if you're Islamic. These kind of things are important as part of their doing in their religion. But why do these ideas persist if the in the face of man's failure to be good? Why, why does it go on that we have this idea that that we need to be good in order to please God? I'll tell you why, because they make you feel religious and give you some sense of a value of 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 that you're something, a sense of self worth maybe uh, for the lack. Of a better term, and that's exactly the thing that Satan wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that you're worth something, right? That that you uh, that that you're you're playing a part. That that it's important that you play a part. He wants you to believe you're good without God. And This, to me, is, is very striking in light of the doctrine of grace. Now, let, let me use a proof text here for you uh, in Isaiah 14. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 14. Remember I said that it destroyed pride that was the the thing that verse 9 did in Isaiah 14 we have a very interesting picture of the fall of Lucifer read the verses there in verse 12 of Isaiah 14 how you are fallen from heaven o lucifer son of the morning How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high ever wonder what Satan's sin was was pride he believed that somehow he could be he a created being and if you look in Ezekiel 28 you find out he was created as one of the the overseeing cherubim he was given an exalted position he was the worship leader of heaven and pride ate him up you see those words, I underlined them in my Bible. I will, I will, I will, over and over again. Now, here's the point I'm moving us toward this evening. Consider the gravity of this now. You have Satan working in his children to get them believe, to believe that grace is unnecessary and works are involved. He's doing that because he believed he could do works. He's the... The king of pride, if you will. Let me ask you this question now. What kind of an insult is it to God for anyone to think that their efforts are a substitute or a help in the process of salvation or living the Christian life? Now think of the gravity of what I just said if you suddenly come away thinking that somehow it's your work or something you have to do or you have to keep doing in order to get to heaven, exactly what are you saying? Because if you believe this is true, then why did Christ have to suffer and die? What would be the purpose of his horrible death? What would be the purpose of of watching that unfold? Only for partial Forgiveness? A sort of a boost up? Let it not be thought so among us. There are good people that come to your door who believe that works are necessary. I have had uh, in leaving the ministry and going back to work uh, the opportunity to... uh, ride in the truck with a a fine Mormon gentleman. I call him that because he thinks he is. And he has assured me many times in our discussions together, we've been very uh, kind to one another. Uh, I've never won a Mormon by tackling him at my front door and giving him a noogie, okay, or hitting him with my Bible or any of the following other things you could think of but I've always tried to be gracious to them and honest about what the Bible says. These people come to your door. You know them at work. Uh, The Las Vegas area is the second largest Mormon population outside of Salt Lake City. So they are here and you know them. And they are, I remember this one gal at church there in Henderson. She had, she lived in a neighborhood where there were a number of Mormon families. And I could, she liked them. They Larry, they're good people." And I said, "I know they're good people. They're nice people. I like Mormons, generally. They're nice people. They're sincere about their faith. They're just sincerely wrong. And I think the gravity of that wrongness concerns me not because I need to be right, but because they're so desperately wrong that they're excluding themselves from the kingdom of God by believing a lie. Look, the Book of Mormon says this. For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved. Sounds good, right? They got it right all the way to the after the comma. There's a comma right there. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved, comma, after all that we can do. They connect grace and works to salvation in a very famous passage in their book. We have just watched Paul destroy the idea of us doing anything so that Christ might do it all. This is a direct opposition to Paul's gospel. And it hints to the source of this thinking. It is pride. The source of pride is Satan, the deceiver, the one who wants to destroy as many people as possible. It's just another offer to exalt and rely upon self instead of the finished work of the cross. You and I have to be on guard against this. Mormons are merely one example. Many other religions will suggest that you have to be good in order to obtain some sort of heavenly benefit. Paul says, no way, Jose, sorry. Not happening. It's not any kind of that. And we need to be be aware of that That there are good people who think they're good enough to get to heaven. And there are going to be a lot of good people in hell trying to figure out what happened. And we don't want to let that happen. I'm not up here condemning anyone for being a Mormon or a Buddhist or anything else. I'm just sounding the alarm. Because doctrinally, we don't bury ourselves in this stuff anymore. And we don't know how to talk about it to other people. I think there's three things we can do is, just in light of this passage. Uh, and and it, let's, let's look at it not from, okay, I want you to say the next time they come to you, the door, when you open the door, blah. Right, let's avoid that. Let's make sure that we understand where we're at because I think out of a proper understanding of grace in our own lives, that grace can flow freely then to other people. What are we supposed to do? What is an authentic Christian belief with regard to God's grace? Let's challenge ourselves with some of these things. First of all, in my own life, I thought, hey, how about Larry Palmer has an honest self-opinion of who Larry Palmer is, right? Let's take off, let's not play charades anymore. Let's not talk about how I'm this or or that. Well, he's a pastor. Well, I was a pastor. That has nothing to do with anything. That is a work flowing out of me. Not a work I'm... De- Look, I may receive some rewards for the work of the ministry that we did, but that has nothing to do with getting saved. That's a work that flowed out of me. It wasn't a work I did myself. I wasn't interested in that. But what do I mean to have a proper self-opinion? I prefer not to deceive myself at this age. Paul says this about every person. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. I'm one of the no, not ones. And so are you. Welcome to church tonight. Let's have an honest self-opinion. I'm not trying to beat you up. I just, let's just be honest. We're, we're as terrible as the next guy. Well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Stop measuring yourself that way. Right? Wrong measuring stick. Proper self-opinion. My pride says, wait, wait. To my pride, I say, sorry. You need to die. You need to die. Let's have a proper self-opinion because when you do that, you recognize what was your desperate condition, right? You were the uh, ones made alive who were dead. That, that's a problem. We were dead. Look, we're no better than anybody else. We're just forgiven. We're saved by the work of somebody else. As long as we know that, that's humbling, isn't it? To just think, wait a minute. Man, I didn't deserve this. I'm chosen, and I don't even know why, except he loved me. I didn't do anything to deserve it. So number one, have a proper self-opinion. Number two, see yourself as completely reliant on God's provision. Not just financially or whatever, but spiritually. You and I are completely reliant on the Holy Spirit to see God do anything that would flow out of us. Any real lasting good that is going to come from me will have to come from the Spirit in me. Hence hence the idea that we focus a lot on the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because it's by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that the work, the fruit of the Spirit can flow out. Anything else is a counterfeit. We don't want to be counterfeiters, right? We want to be those who are are available to be used. Does you want to flow from the reality of a spirit-led and spirit-filled life? And this happens when you have asked God to save you and come into your heart. You've acknowledged this rich grace. You've asked him to come in and take up residence and to begin his work inside of you and start his work of change inside of you, you have to be completely reliant on God's provision through grace to be anything that God can use, not of works. Because if it was, you would boast, and so would I. We're no different. So number two, see yourself as completely reliant on God's provision. Number three, seek to see the fruit of the Spirit flow out of your life. Right? We, it's not our works. I think once I realized this in a practical way in my own life, witnessing to people became so much easier because I wasn't trying to figure out how to do it. And these Mormon kids on their mission would come to the front door. They all believed I was saved. They had no basis to believe that. I'm not a Mormon. <laughs> but they all believed I was saved. And the reason why was because they heard the riches of God's grace at work in Larry Palmer's life. It wasn't about what Larry Palmer was doing. But they heard the testimony of the Spirit working in your life. I think, what, what is it? So we're talking, I'm sort of talking in generalities. Let's get particular here in Galatians 5, 19 through 23. Listen to these words. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's another thing where he's putting two things in juxtaposition for you. He wants you to know what's not the work of the Spirit so you're not confused, right? And then he's going to lay out for you the the things that are. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those all are not me. They're not Larry Palmer. They didn't come natural to me. I'm not naturally a kind guy. I'm not... Long-suffering by nature. Do you know how I many men are not long-suffering before they meet Jesus? I'd rather just have choked you and put you out of your misery. Right? They're going to put up with this nonsense. But then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God comes in your life and you're, you've sensed this work and you're like, who am I, and what have they done with Larry Palmer? Right? I, I'm putting up with this this guy's saying terrible things about me, and I'm putting up with him, and I don't want to choke him yet. What? Why is that? That is a saved man experiencing the spirit of God doing the work of God. I'm not trying to make myself better. Peace and joy. Hard things to come by in this world, but not if you're walking by the Spirit. <laughs> joy out of the craziest things. You, know, you see God do something cool, and you're just like, oh, yeah. And most people aren't even thinking that way. If you're to tell somebody who's a non-believer that, you're just having a moment. you know, oh, yeah. Hey, I just saw this guy, and I told him this. What is wrong with you, dude? Fruit of the Spirit. Kindness. Being kind to others. I I find that work wanting to escape out of me. It's like this Mormon guy that I ride with in the truck all day. I just want to be kind to him. I want him to know the grace of God at work in my life. Let that testimony. You know, they're all about their testimony, right? Well, I got a testimony. I got a testimony that God is changing me, dude, and I don't have anything to do with it. And, of course, he responds by saying, well, you have to have something to do with it. He's a firm believer and who knows what will happen, but one day maybe the grace of God will become real to him. What happens when this is not happening in your life? Maybe you're you're going through a dry time or maybe you're going through a time where you're just not seeing the spirit work the way you think you should. Maybe you're thinking, well, I need to do some works here in order to... No. When I see that happening in my own life by prayer, I ask God to change me by his word. I just realize that if I'm trying to start working, then God, I'm elbowing him out of the way, right? To try to get to the front and and do what needs to be, what I think needs to be done. Whereas rather by prayer, I should be asking God to change me by his work and realizing that when I'm failing, it's the flesh. I'm letting the flesh begin to govern what it is that needs to be done. So those three things then have a proper self-opinion, See yourself as completely reliant on God's provision and seek to see the fruit of the Spirit flow out of your life. Those are practical outworkings of this passage. And I want to elevate as we close here this evening, I want to elevate for you this doctrine of the grace of God, this teaching of the grace of God. When we suggest that there is work to be done to assist in salvation, I think it's I don't think it's too much to say that you are slapping God in the face. It's serious. And for that sin, many will perish. And it's up to us to not only live out that doctrine, but be ready to articulate one of the most important things about God, the riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord we uh, we tend not to be gracious people and yet we've been shown amazing grace and we're grateful God again tonight for you just through your word showing us that kind of thing more and more maybe I hope for you tonight that this exposure to those passages again has, has stirred up a a greater passion for the love of God's grace. The most important thing that ever happened to us was his love through his grace. We're blessed with many spiritual blessings. And so for us tonight, it's just a simple thank you. Thank you, Lord, for doing the work. Thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing now. And thank you, Lord, for the work you're going to do as we just refresh ourselves and recognize these things again, I just know, Lord, that you're going you're to do more. And so we look forward to it, God. And uh, Lord, for me as well as for every person in the room tonight, I just ask, Lord, grow us in grace so that we might be effective receptacles of it and distributors of it. For every ounce of grace you pour into me, Lord, I pray that you would let it leak out into the world around me. We ask that your work, your artistry, your poema, Lord, would be effective in us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.